Welcome to episode 214. I'm Stuart McCullough. I'm the CEO of VHAA. Joining me today is the Manager of Workplace Relations Services, Tim Nagel. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. Tim, you know the drill. Uh, we've got a clue that will suggest today a subject for discussion. Uh, in this instance, it's a piece of footage. We're going to play that footage now. Uh, so, Tim, for the benefit of those people who are listening to this podcast rather than watching, how would you describe what it is that you've just borne witness to? It's difficult to describe, but if I was uh, if I was if I had to, it would say uh, it's a clip of people dancing from some time ago. Mm, mm. Let's watch a, a little bit more. So, Tim, uh, before you refer to dancing, uh, I'm not sure that we can actually accept that that constitutes dancing, notwithstanding that there is movement and there is uh, definitely music. Uh, but these are, if these are dance moves, then they're certainly not moves that are required anymore. So, based on that clue, what would you say that the subject for today's discussion is? Uh, probably based on that clue and solely on that clue, I'd suggest that the, the topic for today is probably the public holidays matrix. Tim, I wish you were right, uh, but sadly, you couldn't be more wrong. Um, because those moves are no longer required, they are surplus to requirements, and for that, we can all be grateful. Now, just for, I guess, some of the um, some of the uh, younger people who might be watching uh, that video, I'll just explain that that was dancing at a time before rhythm had been invented uh, as such, but because it's now surplus to requirements, those moves are redundant, and for that, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, it does bring us to today's discussion, which is redundancy and associated entitlements, specifically under the Enterprise Agreement for the Nurses and Midwives, including the changes uh, that have been made in the most recent round. And because this is part of our implementation series, we do have a spectacular title slide to kick things off. Redundancy. Tim, let's start at the beginning and with subclause one, uh, which sets out really how the clause is arranged. Yeah, so you can see on the screen there, um, it gives an overview of how that clause is arranged. So, uh, and that's as follows. So part A is around uh, the arrangement. Uh, part two is the definitions. Uh, three is uh, the redeployment. Uh, four is support to affected employees. Now we move on to salary maintenance arrangements, relocation, employment terminating due to redundancy, and finally, exception to application of the Victorian government's policy with respect to severance pay. Uh, and, and that approach where we have a, a list of the arrangement at the start of the clause is something that we often do for complex uh, clauses uh, as such. Tim, what's interesting in terms of that list is that um, the, the subject is redundancy, but termination of as a result of redundancy is right near the end. There are eight items and, and termination is, is number seven. Yeah, so as we know, um, uh, redundancy is the result of a long process. So um, termination or result of redundancy is one of the last things that happen in those processes. So therefore, so, it's uh, towards the end. 
So it may well be that there are changes that result in a role uh, becoming redundant, but termination as a result of redundancy is really a matter of, of last resort. Uh, that's correct. So let's work through those subclauses sub in turn, starting with subclause two, which sets out a range of definitions. And Tim, because the definitions are within clause 12 uh, and not set out at the front of clause three, um, uh, that means that those definitions are uh, uh, definitions that apply to this clause and, and this clause only. And there are some uh, key terms defined uh, in that section. They include the definition of comparable role. So I want to focus in on comparable role uh, a little bit uh, because what's interesting about that definition is that it's defined by reference to a, a range of things that it is. Uh, as well as by reference to a range of other considerations, some of which are specific to the employee in question. Yeah, like for instance, that definition says that a comparable role means an ongoing role. And that may sound like a statement of the obvious, but in terms of ongoing role, it means that something like a, a project role with an end date uh, won't be a comparable role. That's correct. The term provides, as you can see on screen, that a compar comparable role means an ongoing role that is the same occupation as that of the affected employee's redundant position, or if not, is, an, is in an occupation acceptable to the effect of the employee, and is any of the following. Uh, A, is the same clinical specialty as that of the affected employee's former position, in a clinical specialty acceptable to the affected employee, or finally, a position that with the reasonable support described 12.3G, the affected employee could undertake and finally, is the same level as the affected employee's redundant position. So let's just go through those elements. Uh, same occupation. Uh, or an occupation acceptable to the affected employee. Uh, is any of the three things, is the same clinical specialty as the former position? Or a clinical specialty that is acceptable to the employee. Or a position that will, re with reasonable support, and clause 12.3G has more detail on that, with reasonable support, the affected employee could undertake. And any one of those three things is enough. And it's the same level as the redundant role. Tim, I uh, just want to go to that issue of the difference uh, in terms of within an agreement when there is a list like that, the difference between and and or. So where you see and joining two or more requirements, each of those two or more requirements must be met. Whereas if the two or more requirements are joined by an or, you need only to satisfy one of them. Um, to this point, the definition is describing uh, attributes of a job uh, to determine whether it's comparable or not, um, but that's not the end of it. Uh, the definition goes on to set out a range of other factors, some of which uh, are part of the employment, but some of which are really outside the employment. Uh, so those factors are on the screen at the moment. So um, the Comparable role takes into account the number of ordinary hours normally worked by the affected employee. Is a reasonable distance from the affected employee's current work location. Takes the affected employee's personal circumstances, including family responsibilities, into account. And takes some safety considerations as well. Uh, which means circumstances relevant to an individual uh, are part of the consideration as to whether a role is comparable or not. Um, so we've been talking about the definition, Tim. It what, in what context within the clause is the term comparable used? So it's in the context of redeployment to another role at 12.3, which we'll come to in just a moment. 
Excellent. Before we come to that, what other terms are what other terms are subject to definitions in 12.2? So other definitions at 12.2 include consultation, continuity of service, uh, level, reasonable distance, redeployment period, redundancy, relocation, and salary maintenance. And those terms are capitalized within the clause. So they are, if you see a capitalized term, check and see whether the term is defined either at the front of the clause or at clause three. Tim, there are a couple of definitions I want to focus on, uh, one of which is reasonable distance and the other is redeployment period. So reasonable distance is defined as follows within the agreement. A reasonable distance means a distance that has regard to the employee's original work location, current home address, capacity of the employee to travel, additional travelling time, effects on the personal circumstances of the affected employee, including family commitments and responsibilities and other matters raised by the employee or assistance provided by the employer. Again, uh, noting that what is reasonable takes into account the circumstances of the affected employee, including where they live, their capacity to travel and family commitments. So the term reasonable distance is used in the context of the definition of comparable role and relocation. So as for the redeployment period, uh, that is on the screen as we speak. So redeployment period means a period of 13 weeks from the time the employer notifies the affected employee in writing that consultation under clause 11 is complete and that the redeployment period has begun. And given that the subject of the podcast is redundancy, we should probably touch on the definition for of redundancy also. So redundancy is defined as follows. Redundancy means the employer no longer requires the affected employee's job to be performed by anyone because of changes in the operational requirements of the employer's enterprise. That takes us to um, subclause 12.3, redeployment. Um, let's get the first part of that term up on screen. So at subclause A of 12.3, an affected employee whose role will be redundant will be considered for redeployment during the redeployment period. Um, Tim, we were discussing earlier the difference between and and or. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, I think, the difference between words like will or shall and a word like may. So words like will and shall are used to say that something must occur. There's no discretion. Uh, whereas may generally indicates that there is a discretion. It may or may not happen. That's right. So, And the term we were just looking at is uh, will rather than may. That is, the employee will be considered for redeployment during the redeployment period, not outside of that. So the clause contains obligations for an employer, including uh, to provide certain information about redeployment in writing. It does. That information is the date the affected employee's role is to be redundant, details of the redeployment process, the reasonable support that will be provided in accordance with subclause 12.3G, and finally, the affected employee's rights and obligations. And in terms of details regarding the redeployment process, that might include the employer outlining what it proposes to do during that period. It will. Um, so providing details of the redeployment process will give it the best chance of success, which is what we all want in the circumstances. Tim, one of the things that uh, the employer needs to communicate in writing is the affected employee's rights and obligations. What are some examples of those rights and obligations? Yeah, so one right is the right to be represented in that process, including by a union. 
Uh, employee obligations are set out subclause 12.3D and require that the employee actively participate in certain activities during the redeployment period, including identifying training needs, developing a CV, and actively monitoring redeployment opportunities. During the redeployment period, there are a range of employer obligations which are set out at 12.3C. Um, the first of these employer obligations is that the employer must uh, make every effort to redeploy the affected employee to a comparable role in terms of classification, grade and income, including appointing a case manager to provide the affected employee with support and assistance. Yeah, so redeployment is not a passive process. Redeployment period is not just a period of time, but requires that certain actions occur during that period of time. Jim, what's the second employer obligation? So the second obligation is that the employer must take into account the personal circumstances of the affected employee, including family commitments and responsibilities. Once again, uh, emphasising that the actions of the employer during this process don't happen in the vacuum, and they take into account the factors uh, that are outside of the employment and are specific to the employee. So the third obligation is new, specifically it provides that the employer will, where the employer is creating a new role, substantially similar to the affected employee's redundant role, give priority to the redeployment of an affected employee to the new position before considering applicants that are not affected employees. So Tim, this, as you said, is a, is a new provision. And one of the things that the agreement does do is it gives an example of this um, in terms of a spill and fill process, which is a term that people may or may not be familiar with. But for those who are unfamiliar with the term spill and fill, can you explain it? So the example gives an explanation. There's a, a pool of employees who do a particular kind of work. The employer requires fewer people to do that work. So the number of jobs might be reduced from eight to five, for instance. So you spill the eight people and then uh, eight roles, and then you fill them with five of those uh, previous incumbents. So that's a circumstance where, where everyone within that pool could perform the available roles. That's correct. So what the clause says is that when you're undertaking that process, you must try to fill the new roles with existing employees before considering other applicants, whether they're external to the organisation or from elsewhere. Um, and that's really to counter uh, a circumstance where a number of positions, um, the number of positions is being reduced, but existing employees are being told that they need to compete against external applicants for the roles. Uh, what we want to do is, is maximise ongoing employment for those existing affected employees. Yeah, correct. The restructure doesn't mean that a new role should be open to all comers. There's an obligation to those affected by the restructure to minimise the impact and to seek redeployment opportunities for them. So uh, given that this is new, Tim, let's get that example up on screen. Uh, so the example there is the employer needs fewer employees to do particular work and roles are being restructured to take this into account. In a spill and fill, the employer will consider the affected employees for the new roles before other applicants. Tim, what else is covered under redeployment under clause 4.3? So the clause states that if an employee rejects a comparable role, the affected employee may be eligible for a departure package. So I'm mindful that the term uh, expressly states that someone waiting for redeployment can be transferred to temporary alternative duties uh, at the existing campus or at another campus, either because their existing employment conditions permitted or by agreement. So there are also terms about support for redeployment. Specifically, 
uh, that for an available role to be considered a comparable role, reasonable support must be provided. And the clause also provides examples such as theory training, um, a supernumerary period, support for educational staff and a review to determine if any further training is required. Um, Tim, what if there's no redeployment available? So if both the employer and the affected employee agree that successful redeployment is unlikely, the affected employee may accept a redundancy package and will be entitled to be paid out the balance of the 13-week redeployment period. And just returning to that idea of the issue of a comparable role, can an, uh, an affected employee accept a non-comparable role? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, and uh, this is provided for 12.3i in, uh, in the clause. So subclause 12.4 says more about support and assistance. It sets out the support and assistance which will note the term will be provided where relevant. Uh, these are counselling and support services, uh, retraining, preparation of job applications, interview coaching, time off to attend job interviews and funding of independent financial advice for employees eligible to receive a separation package. The clause also states uh, that other assistance may include, but it's not limited to uh, not limited to, to career planning. Um, that takes us to subclause five and, and salary maintenance. It does. It sets out um, when that entitlement applies and the period which is 52 weeks from the date the inflicted employee is redeployed. Uh, except where the affected employee accepts, takes another position within that 52 week period. Uh, or the role they go to has higher pay. Uh, in which case there's nothing to maintain. So the salary maintenance clause does more than maintain salary. Uh, it also preserves accrued leave entitlements. It does. In terms of long service leave annually, the value of that leave is preserved. For personal leave, it's preserved in terms of hours accrued. And subclause six deals with relocation. Again, there's an obligation to advise the employee in writing. In addition, the employer will, as you can see on screen, ensure the relocation is a reasonable distance unless otherwise agreed. Ensure that the affected employee is provided with information on the new location's amenities, layout and local operations prior to the relocation. And finally, consult with the union regarding the content of that information. So Tim, I did spot the defined term there that was capitalised, um, but there may be an entitlement or a relocation allowance. Yes, yeah, so relocation allowance is about additional costs for travel and other expenses arising from the relocation. So the relocation allowance is, is capped in terms of time, namely 12 months, and it's also capped in terms of value uh, at $1,900. But it's important to note that there's an exception. Specifically, it doesn't apply if you're being relocated to a location which they can be expected to be redeployed as part of their existing employment conditions. Tim, uh, we've gone through those subclauses. That does now bring us to the to the issue of termination. It's clear that every effort must be made to redeploy someone where a role is being made redundant. But if it can't be avoided, the state government's industrial relations policies apply, and these prescribe severance payments based on the period of service. Uh, now, for the sake of completeness, we probably do need to know that there is an exception um, with res with respect to the requirement to pay severance. Uh, so there is uh, an exception that is at subclause eight, but it's reasonably narrow. That exception applies where the employer secures a, secures a comparable role for the employee with another employer who's covered by the agreement. And there are some other conditions as well uh, for that exception to apply, such 
as the role being a reasonable distance, continuity of service being provided, maintenance if there's a loss of income and other supports. So what we're really talking about is a circumstance where there hasn't been a loss. Uh, but in terms of the employer where the employer secures a comparable role, it's not really a low bar. It's a lot more than giving an affected employee a phone number and wishing them well. It's actually taking active steps to secure that alternative role for that employee. Um, and Tim, look, thank you for taking us through the updated redundancy and other entitlements clause. Um, let's conclude, I think, with some more footage of the alleged dancing. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.